Love a good fright? Stream your fears with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and acclaimed exclusives like Creepshow and Slasher, Flesh and Blood, experience what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series covers the horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of horror, thriller, and supernatural fan. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good, it's scary. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. Yeah, so I had a conversation with dad last night and... He is leaving. He and my stepmom are leaving on this uh, four-day hunting trip. And so he took me aside and told me, he said, here's the 38. He's got a a loaded 38 and um, another gun. And then he's got, he's like, and Dirty Harry lives here. He's got his Dirty Harry gun. Um, There's three fully loaded weapons sitting there. And I had a plan if anyone came to the house and came up the stairs. We know they know where we live, too. So, yeah, we just decided to stay together. We have a full bar here and also some guns that are loaded. So that was important. It's been about a week since our conversation with Chris. My dad and stepmom have left for a hunting trip and left us with my dad's guns in case anyone comes by the house. On top of that, James has had to leave town for another assignment. So for now, it's just Taylor and me. And out there, somewhere, Rebecca's killer. In September of 2004, 22-year-old Rebecca Gould was brutally murdered in a remote area of the Arkansas Ozarks. 14 years later, her killer is still out there. I've come back to Mountain View with one mission, to get justice for Rebecca. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. After he retired, my dad built a big country home that's a replica of one of Thomas Jefferson's houses. The French colonial White Column Plantation House sits on top of a mountain overlooking Mountain View. Architecturally, it's beautiful. But because it overlooks the town, everyone knows where we live. It's quiet here at night, dead quiet, except for the sound of an old ticking grandfather clock. 
after we lock the gate, we hunker down in my war room upstairs to take another look at the murder board. In this whole region, I mean, we saw my storm. There's a huge drug problem, and I get why there's this big focus on drugs. Um, but I, in this case, and again, you know, everything has to be taken case by case. In this case, it really wasn't a factor, or doesn't seem to have been. I think that they they genuinely thought that Chris might have had something to do with it, and also perhaps the thought was, well, he's a bad guy. He deals drugs. He's on drugs. It was just really easy to sort of slot him into that and say, maybe he did it. And we really don't even know why he got accused of it. Well, I still don't understand why. I mean, and, and granted, the police aren't sharing evidence, so there could be evidence we don't know about. But, I mean, I, I really have no idea why he was named as a suspect other than, I mean, I'm in my head, I'm always thinking, like, how could it have happened? The only thing that I, I have found or that I can recall that would really put him there is when Rebecca called Jesse saying that she needed a new alternator, but he couldn't provide that, so she called Chris. So if she did call Chris, and if Chris was in her recent contacts, that is literally the only reason that I can think of that made the cops even go towards him. Right, and that's still not... I still don't understand where they went from there to he did it. Because he has a bad rep. Yeah, I think so. Unless there's some major piece that we're missing. I think so. Because if there's no DNA evidence that implicates him. And again, that's that's another thing without going off on a tangent again that really troubles me about this case is that there is a ton there was a ton of evidence in that house and a lot of blood. So why was there no usable forensics? Why was there no usable DNA evidence? Um, you know, if Chris did this, why is there no DNA? Is it because it was messed up or because it, it wasn't there? We've explored the police theory that Chris killed Rebecca in a drug-fueled rage and that his friend JB helped him clean up. We've concluded that this doesn't make sense. It seems like Chris and JB were in the frame because, A, they were both involved in drugs, and B, they had both talked to Rebecca recently. And since we saw the autopsy report, it looks more and more like Rebecca's murder was unplanned and a crime of passion, but not a drug-fueled rage. I don't buy the theory that there is no DNA from Chris because he got lucky. Chris's DNA is not there because Chris was never there. But if they didn't kill Rebecca, who did? Now we need to go back to another rumor we've heard about the murder, that a female or a group of people, including a female, killed Rebecca. And that group centers around Jennifer. Jennifer is the common thread of everyone in the group. And at the time of Rebecca's murder, Jennifer was dating Rebecca's ex-boyfriend, Justin, and she was pregnant with his child. At the time, Jennifer was also good friends with Cindy, who was dating Chris. She knew JB, too, because he lived in her rental house. And also, Jennifer knew Casey from working at Sonic. Several witnesses have told us that Jennifer got into an argument with Rebecca over Justin on at least one occasion. We've heard sometimes the fights turned physical, and Rebecca was not the kind of girl to back down from a fight. Several members of Rebecca's family have mentioned feeling like Jennifer may have been involved in some way. The police say that Jennifer had an alibi for the day of the murder. They claim she was shopping and say there are credit card receipts to back this up. But again, since they aren't sharing any information with us, we can't rule her out until we verify the information ourselves. Oh, hey, it's it's Catherine Townsend. 
Oh, uh, I forgot to tell you something. I forgot. Sure. This is Shirley, Rebecca's mother. The last time she talked to her daughter was on Sunday, the day before Rebecca was murdered. Rebecca was in Harp's grocery store with Casey, and as she chatted with her mother, she told her that she was running out of minutes and would call her back. It's a call that Shirley never received. We rented a motel room and stayed there and uh, looking for Becky all day long throughout the day. And uh, we were stopping traffic on the road in front of that where that trailer was and asking people if they had seen Rebecca on the car. And people commented, it's a small place. Yeah, there was a carload of, of, of people that were stopped with her. And we were trying to find out who it was. And I can't remember, but it was Jennifer and them. It was a carload of them. But I want to tell you, it's dangerous trying to get information from her. For her. I've heard, you know, she may be responsible for the deaths of her parents, maybe other people. Certainly, even if she didn't do any of that, she's still a tough girl, you know? I mean, that's putting it really lightly. So you were there that week. You're looking for Rebecca. When did you? When did Jennifer's name first come up for you? Oh, right up, right away, right away, because that was the carload of people. This is the first I've heard of a carload of people confronting Rebecca. We need to look into this. As we keep talking, Shirley tells me a story about some earrings she gave Rebecca. You could probably uh, Google it on the internet, uh, where they make them in Mexico. They're gold earrings. And this guy that I knew, he uh, went to Mexico, and he brought them back, and he gave them to me because he liked me. But Rebecca asked me to borrow those earrings. And I said, sure, you know. And uh, it's the Lord's Prayer. I think you have to have a magnifying glass to see, but they're, they're gold. And uh, the Lord's Prayer is written on them. If you ever read Jennifer, look at her ears. Because I figure, you know, she got them. I haven't seen or heard about any earrings in Rebecca's belongings or that she was wearing any at the time of her death. So was Shirley mistaken? Or could the killer have taken the earrings as a souvenir? I know who did it. I just want them put behind bars. Over the years, Rebecca's father, Larry, has gotten hundreds of tips and conducted an exhaustive investigation. And one day, he got a letter from an unlikely source, Brian Bangs. Brian is Jennifer's ex-husband. He's also a convicted double murderer. He killed Jennifer's parents. Brian was found guilty of two counts of capital murder in the deaths of his mother-in-law and father-in-law. He was also convicted of rape, Class B felony kidnapping, and first-degree felony battery of his wife, Jennifer. Well, I didn't know the story behind Brian. Um, I had to research the story. Um, and I know that the first time he reached out to me, um, uh, I, th- I think he, I believe he told me bits and pieces of it. He was given two life sentences plus 85 years. He's currently serving his sentence in the Cummins unit of the Arkansas Department of Corrections with no possibility of parole. Brian has maintained his innocence over the years, but at trial, the prosecutors presented a compelling case. They said that Brian went to Jennifer's parents' house and hid in the bathroom shower. He waited until the family went to sleep at around 10.30 p.m., then crept through the house to the bedroom and shot them in their bed. After shooting Jennifer's parents, 
Jennifer testified that Brian yanked her up out of the bed, hit her in the head with a gun, and dragged her through the hallway by her foot, leaving bloodstains on the carpet. He tied her up and eventually drove her into the woods where he attacked her. As I got talking to other people that were familiar with what had taken place, I realized that some of the same players were involved with with this. In his letters to Larry, Brian wrote that he believes Jennifer is a sociopathic killer who was involved in Rebecca's death and in the death of her parents. In one of his appeals, Brian claimed that Jennifer's mother was sitting up in the bed when he shot her and that he merely clicked and began shooting. However, the medical examiner testified that both of Jennifer's parents' injuries were consistent with their lying asleep in bed when they were shot. I think part of Brian's motive in wanting to assist us with Rebecca's case is the fact that he thinks helping find her killer might help him. And obviously, we have to take anything he says with a massive grain of salt. But if him believing that his case will turn into the next West Memphis Three will get him to talk about Rebecca, I'm all for doing an interview. I gave Brian um, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt to start with, and I I felt like maybe exploring it. So I had an individual go down there and, and talk to him and determine what the actual story was. And then also to give me an opinion of the veracity of, of what his statements were. And the feeling was that he was being truthful. And then um, I finally decided much later to try to go to see him. And then you have to get all kinds of approval. And they ended up, um, according to him, they denied us the right to get together. So we're trying to get permission to see him right now. And it'd be interesting to see you know, what he says now about all that and if it's changed or... And they, of course, they said we filled our forms out wrong, so now we're kind of maybe going through a version of what you went through. We'll see. I've been trying to organize a visit with Brian, but I keep getting denied. As a licensed private investigator, I was required to pass a fairly stringent background check, so I find this refusal a bit strange. And no one will tell me why I've been refused. It's it's things like that that happen to you that make you go, why? What, what's, what are people trying to protect here? Finally, after a week of back and forth, Taylor gets approved. She logs on and can see Brian sitting in the middle of a public area in the prison. Hey, Brian. So what's been going on? How, how's everything going? Hi, everything's going all right. Slow, but one day at a time. Video conferencing with a prisoner is a bit surreal because you feel like you're right there in the prison. You can see the other inmates behind the person you're talking with playing cards on cold metal tables and walking around in their wife beaters. Brian is in his 50s, and he still sports a mustache. He has thick, round frame glasses that are oddly fashionable. Brian wears earbuds and mentions he likes listening to music. He writes in one of his letters to Taylor to download Princess of the Dawn by the group Accept. Princess of the Dawn What exactly was the timeline of your relationship with Jennifer? Brian's video feed starts to sputter. He freezes up in digital static as he talks. Uh, we knew each other since we were kids. When she turned 16, she started working at Pizza Hut. And uh, one of the guys that she went to school with, uh, he'd ride around town with me all the time. And he kept telling me we need to go by Pizza Hut and see Jennifer. And finally, we went by Pizza Hut and got some to drink. And she started talking with me. And after she got to work that night, she started chasing me around. 
and pretty much until she called me. And uh, that was from um, May of 93 until we started sleeping together in October of 93. And our relationship just progressed from then. And we ended up getting married and having a son. After my buddy Travis got killed, we was in a car wreck, and he got killed. And uh, uh, I tried it. Well, you know, uh, he got killed on a Thursday. We buried him on a Sunday, and she didn't say nothing to me. She acted like everything was fine. We, we slept together right now. We ate dinner together right now. Uh, went to bed together. Uh, got up the next morning. Uh, she got up to go to work, and uh, I got up to go to work, and she never come home. In late 1996, Brian got into a car wreck, and shortly after that, Jennifer left him. Next Sunday is when I got charged, you know, Monday. I think they was killed on a Sunday, and I was charged on a uh, next day or the next day, something like that. When did you originally hear about Rebecca's case? Uh, somebody sent me a newspaper clipping, and they wrote at the bottom of it, uh, strange, uh, but Jennifer seems to be involved in this. And then after that, when did you reach out to Larry? Uh, it probably took a while after that. Now, Brian has been writing Larry letters for years and offered to help him with Rebecca's case. And a lot of what he writes can only qualify as jailhouse rumors and unqualified leads. He claims that his ex-wife and other members of her family were involved in Jennifer's parents' murder. Some of his claims in the letters are bizarre. He said that he spoke to someone in prison who told him that Rebecca was tortured and held hostage for several days on a mattress. But it was in the first letter that he pointed the finger at Jennifer. Different people come through here that I spoke with and everything. And uh, after that's when I got a hold of Larry and uh, from... You know, because I heard from more than one person that Jennifer was connected with it. And uh, I just trying to give him some sort of closure, you know, peace, you know. Taylor asked Brian about what Jennifer's motive may have been if she killed Rebecca. See, you know, her motive would be, uh, would have been over Justin. Because uh, from uh, my understanding, Rebecca and Justin were a couple, you know. And then Jennifer started dating And then Jennifer got pregnant. And uh, she'd already been into uh, Rebecca with it a couple times. At the time of Rebecca's murder, Jennifer was pregnant with Justin's baby. She was jealous of Rebecca, and they were no longer friends. Brian has sent us a bunch of witness statements, but none of them have notary seals, so I'm not sure how legit they are. Uh, I've got... Newspaper clippings that I've got out of uh, three different papers. Uh, I've got a, a witness statement. He, him and his wife, they witnessed Jennifer and Rebecca fight in a physical altercation at a place called Reno's in Batesville at a gas station. And then I've got another witness statement uh, that that I, I can't remember. I call this one I've got. But uh, anyway, he wrote down that uh, he was at a party in Leslie. Um, and uh, Jennifer and Justin's are. We know that people in town are scared of Jennifer. But is she really capable of murder? And on that morning, would she have had a reason to target Rebecca? And Jennifer got into an argument with some people, and she pulled out a pistol and waved it around. 
and uh, made some threatening statements to the crowd. It's like one day she would be somebody else, and then maybe an hour later she she'd be like talking to somebody totally different, different person. Um, and and if she gets mad at you, she just her eyes just kind of black out, and, and uh, then she just wants to fight. I don't know. It's hard to explain. People just seem to die around her, you know. Her, uh, I don't know. If if you come up with any names that you know are around or coming this way, let me know and I'll try to speak with them. All right. Bye, Brian. Peace, love, God be with you. Bye, right, bye, bye. Brian makes some pretty incredible claims, and after talking with him, I don't feel comfortable accepting them as fact. But his offer to be our man on the inside if we need information from anyone else in jail is one I'll keep in my back pocket. Like everyone else in this case, Rebecca had several different sides to her personality. According to Danielle, she was a person who would take the shirt off her back to help a friend in trouble. But she also did not shy away from conflict. Multiple witnesses, friends, and family all say that Rebecca got into arguments with a few different women before she died. In addition to Jennifer... We've also heard that Rebecca had argued with Teresa. She's Jennifer's cousin and also worked at Sonic with Casey. Forget six degrees of separation. In this case, there seemed to be at most two. We talked to Teresa, and she says that Rebecca had been living with her, and they got into a fight over unpaid bills. After Rebecca left the house without saying anything, Teresa told us they had another argument at Sonic. Teresa also said that Rebecca's dog was shot just a few weeks before her murder. Rebecca was crying at Sonic, and Teresa hugged her. She told us that she was relieved that they had made up before she died. We need to understand more about Rebecca's history with Jennifer. And we have to be careful when we talk about Rebecca's case in public, because you never know who will be around. So we go back to Rebecca's sister, Danielle. Uh, Jennifer's ex, like, has been calling the cops and telling them that she did it. Like, also, like, he's been right. saying that. So, I mean, who knows? He's, yeah. I know he's a convicted criminal, but... But, but she should have went down with him then. And, you know, Jennifer's just not a good person. <clears throat> I think there was a lot of jealousy from Jennifer to Rebecca. I mean, I could see why, but I, I could see because Rebecca was gorgeous. And what was Justin and Rebecca's relationship like? They were together for over seven years. They lived together. Um, they were they were normal. I mean, they may have fought a few times, but they were together, and then they split up, and... Do you think he was still in love with her? Oh, yeah, I do. Were they still involved in any way at the time that, um, that she died? Not that I know of. And he was involved with Jennifer. I mean, I'm just wondering if, if Jennifer would have gotten mad enough if, you know, like, if it's... Like, how well do you know Jennifer? You think she could get mad enough to mm -hmm. do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just don't know why the cops are so, like, ruled Jennifer out so fast based on some shopping receipts. You know, like, when I have heard from more than one person that she... It seems yeah. very odd, so we gotta, we gotta like, 
Nick always said, because Nick was related to Jennifer. Yeah, he's a cousin. Right? He always said it had something to do with the previous with her parents. That's how she got out of that and something to do with her lawyer then. There was something there, and that's why she got out of the prior thing with okay, her parents. I see. So, you know, maybe that's why they're not going after her. I don't know. I see. Do you understand? Okay. Yes, I do. After talking with Danielle, it seems clear that there are definitely some tangled relationships between Jennifer, Rebecca, and Justin that we need to sort out. And just our luck, Jennifer skipped town and she's staying in Florida. Jennifer ended up marrying Justin, and they had a daughter together. But they eventually divorced, and Justin's remarried now. Justin was the love of Rebecca's life for years. But Jennifer was pregnant with his child at the time Rebecca was murdered. Could this have been a motive for him to cover for her? Like so many people in this case, people's opinion of Justin depends on who you're talking to. Some say he's a sweetheart. Others claim he's an abusive monster. Jennifer and Justin are finally apart. They were back and forth for years. The, the people who cared about Rebecca, like, they want to talk about this. You can almost, like, feel it in the air around here. People want to talk about this shit, you know? They, something's going to happen. People have told me Justin's, you know, really cares about this case. Jennifer didn't like Rebecca, so I, I find it very— she'll probably shut the door in our face no matter what, yeah. you know? And, um, I mean, even if she was here. So I don't think we're going to get that much from her. Since we can't get to Jennifer— Justin is who we need to find next. I write him a letter explaining who we are and what we're doing and put it into a sealed envelope. All right, so we're going to um, find Justin. He now works at a boat place. Yeah, we got, he was working construction and I think that project finished and we got a message, we got a tip. So um, we're gonna go to his work and I think this is our best shot at getting him by himself. And worst case, he's not there, and we leave the letter, and then he calls us back. In 1.3 miles, take a slight right turn onto Maple Drive. Either way, um, either way, it's better to do it this way rather than walk up to his house. He and his wife could get in a confrontation, or she could just get involved. And um, a lot of times, the new wife will get protective, and you know, we, she doesn't really need to be involved. We need to get him by himself. I'm kind of scared. I don't know why. I'm just nervous. I'm, I'm, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't nervous. All right, here it is. Turn right. Wow, it really is right by the court complex. Let's Arrived. Park. Should we should we park here? We walk in and ask for Justin, and we're pointed around back to the break area. But you can go around the building here. Oh, got and it. And outside okay. the break room, there's going to be some people like smoking. So gotcha. You can ask them. To okay. Go with him. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Justin. A guy comes up to help us. Oh, we're on lunch right now, so. He pokes his head into a door and comes back. Now there. Can we, would it be cool, can we leave a letter for him? Yeah. Would y'all mind? Will you give it to him? Yeah, I'll give it to him. All right, thank you. No problem. All right. Thank I'll you. I'll give it to him. Taylor and I head back to the car. All in all, I wish we'd gotten him, but like, Considering we didn't, we he's definitely he's here. here. We could have driven around and not found him. Yeah. We found him. He's going to also know we know where he works. Yeah. Like, so it's almost like not you can't hide in a sinister way, but you kind of can't hide. 
Later that day, my phone rings. It's Justin. We'll be right back. Love a good fright? Start streaming and screaming with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and critically acclaimed exclusives, discover what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series cover the entire horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of fan. Come experience highly anticipated new releases like Superhost, Seance starring Suki Waterhouse, and the Boulay Brothers' Dracula. Plus, don't miss out on Creepshow, Slasher, Flesh and Blood, and other must-see Shudder exclusives you won't find anywhere else. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good it's scary. This episode is sponsored by Maidenhome. High-quality, handcrafted furniture for the modern home. Maiden Home brings you thoughtfully designed custom furniture, handcrafted in North Carolina. This region is home to some of the world's most talented artisans who are experts in woodworking, upholstery, and finishing. By partnering directly with these family-owned workrooms, Maiden Home gives you access to the world's finest craftsmanship without the retail markup. From sofas and sectionals to tables and beds, you'll find beautiful heirloom-quality pieces that will last for years. And with over 60 fabrics and leathers and a variety of wood finishes to choose from, you can create a piece custom to your design style. Enjoy complimentary white glove delivery on all orders, a lifetime warranty, and easy returns within 30 days. To browse the latest collection and order free swatches, visit MadeInHome.com. That's M-A-I-D-E-N-H-O-M-E.com to start building your custom piece today. Geico knows there are many reasons why you ride. From the exciting adventure of the daily commute to the peace of mind that Geico always has your back with 24-7 access to claim service and legendary customer service. But Pamela Mund had one reason in particular. My skin is extremely averse to most fabrics, except for the soft, buttery feeling of leather. Thankfully, I found my clan of leather lovers in the biking community. It's been life-changing. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. After getting our letter, Justin calls us, and he and his wife agree to meet us at a local pizza shop. So you're Caroline's sister? Yeah. Well, you look just like her. I've seen Larry's photos of Justin and Rebecca from high school when they were together. Back then, he looked like a sweet kid. Skinny, tan, with shiny black hair. All dressed up for the prom in a tux with Rebecca on his arm. I've also seen his mugshot. He's older, harder looking. His hair has lost that shine, and his eyes are sunken in. He's unrecognizable. Can you just tell us a little bit about Rebecca? Uh, yeah, she was uh, she was my girlfriend from like tenth grade in high school till just probably a week before that happened to her. Um, I mean, she she meant everything to me. I mean, you know, we was. Uh, it was like that, you know, I mean, we was like best friends, and, and uh, I don't know, it was just the worst thing that ever happened to me. A week? That's surprising. According to Danielle, Rebecca and Justin had been broken up for a year. I mean, she was just the nicest person you ever meet. And, uh, I don't know, 
know, she had the biggest heart in the world. Show you how much I love Rebecca. I mean, I named my daughter Rebecca, and I mean, I just. Like you said, I mean, and I know it's hard on everybody, like, but it's tough to people because we're never gonna. Yeah. Gonna yeah. Be there, you know. So. That's what I said. You know, I mean, yeah, it is hard on me, but it'd be, I'm sorry, it'd be worth it. You know, for for it to be be done. Justin's wife seems shy and a bit nervous at first, but she's very helpful and seems sincere. And it's clear that she wants to help her husband get closure. Yeah, that's something that's like weighed on him for, I know, the whole time we've been together. It would help, it would help him so much. The last time I seen her, I'll never forget it. I remember I was in the car with her, and I remember we rode up down by that ballpark. She was an angel, I swear. She had a glow to her. It's like I'm real, man. When he talks about the last time he saw Rebecca, Justin stares out the window, and for a second, I can tell he's right back in that ball field. I can't imagine, like, what that, what that effect could have on you, like, moving forward, not knowing what, you know, what's happened. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, it, it bothers me every day. I, I got real bad on drugs after it happened, and just kind of went downhill and just kept digging. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it has a toll. It has took a toll on me. Um, do you remember when you heard that she was missing? Yeah, I was in uh, Tunica, Mississippi with my dad at a casino. Um, the phone started ringing there, and it was her sister, Danielle. They, they was hoping she was with me, you know, and but she wasn't. And, uh, I told him, you know, that I would come to look for right then, you know, and, and I did, so. He also remembers the investigation because he became a suspect, along with Jennifer. And it was like six months down the line. I mean, and they, I'm sitting there thinking that they're getting closer to solving this case, you know. And was I wrong? Because <laughs> then they get me up there and then my eggs. And I mean, integrated is bad. I mean, together and separately. Uh, they was telling me how I done it. Things like that, you know. Almost like they was wanting me to just tell them I done it. Justin says he helped the family with the search. But six months later, he and Jennifer both got called in for questioning. Did you and, did you and Jennifer ever talk about the murder? Uh, yeah, I mean, I really can't remember much about talking about it. I mean, she came over there. She was there with me helping look for it. As we're talking, I keep watching Justin's new wife. She looks down like she wants to say something. Just because I've, like, experienced her since being with him, but I don't know. I was with her for 12 years, you know. And God help me, you know, if I went to sleep with her there, she's that type of person, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean... Well, I think about her from the things she's said to me, like, she's she's crazy, this girl. She does a lot of threatening and stuff like that, you know. And, uh, yeah. In the years they've been together, Justin's wife has experienced Jennifer's explosive tendencies firsthand. I know that when domestic violence is involved in relationships, people can have two sides to their personality. I asked Justin about Jennifer's alibi. Where was she supposedly on that Monday? 
She was supposedly in Conway. She kept all of her receipts. We, we lived in Perryville at the time, me and her in an apartment. Perryville is 35 minutes from Conway, outside of Little Rock. That's about two hours from Melbourne and Mountain View. And she was supposedly on camera and had receipts from doing shopping in Conway. That's, that's like all I can remember about it. But. Would, would Jennifer have known where Casey lived, do you think? She yeah. would have known he was gone. She used to be his manager at Melbourne Sonny. Okay. I don't know that, so yeah, she probably did. Do you know if Jennifer and Casey were like friends or just they were? I'm, I'm terrified of her. Yeah, and I mean, I hate she is too. I mean, but she has a reason to be how we feel like. I mean, just the stuff she says and stuff. I, mean, I think Rebecca could have held her own with her. Yeah. I really do. Rebecca was a scrapper. Yeah, I thank God thank for y'all. And yeah. I mean, God bless y'all for that. Thanks. Y'all thank you. Just, uh, I mean, I'm just so glad that somebody's doing that. And Rebecca deserves to have somebody in her corner. Yeah, she especially does. like you. You know, she somebody, does. somebody like you really needs to be in her corner. Yeah, who cares and knew what was going on? Well, I am. <laughs> I promise you. If y'all need us, you just call us. All right, thank you. Thank you. Justin and his wife leave, and Taylor and I look at each other. We're both thinking the same thing. That torment about this is genuine with all these guys. You can see yeah. it. Like, you can see it. Also, totally didn't have to help her come forward. It sounds like they were together a lot closer to the time of murder then. Mm-hmm. She's the first person that we can actually put, like, she knew where to go. Yeah. So Justin just told us that he and Rebecca were dating until just a week before she was murdered. Could Jennifer have found out that Justin was still seeing Rebecca and gotten into a confrontation with her over the weekend that she decided to finish on Monday morning? After we leave the pizza place and get back in the car, Taylor and I regroup. After our conversation with Justin, we have a lot to unpack. Several times during this investigation, we've heard that Rebecca's murder involved more than one person and that those people were at a party over the weekend. We call George Jarrett and tell us to meet us back at Dad's house to go over the murder board. There's a couple details that just, and you know being a private investigator in addition to being a journalist, that just stood out to me from the, from the beginning. The folded clothes. Sheets in the washer. The fact that there was a, an attempt to clean the house up. I don't think a guy, and I've covered probably over a dozen capital murder cases. Um, you know, the first case in that, that in that Creekside Bones book that I wrote, it, the first case in there is about, you know, a father and son who are convicted of ruthlessly slaughtering this family for. They didn't clean up the crime scene. I mean, when they went in, they, one of the murder weapons was still lying in the little girl's stuffed animals. I mean, so they left... They left a lot of evidence, and so I, it seems to me like it would be something more like a female would do. Now, is it possible? Um, I'm a pretty cleanly guy. I clean my house all the time. I'm very nitpicky, so is it possible? Yes. But if I was an investigator, I would think that would be the first place I would go. Well, I guess um, that's also what I've been told. I've been told Jennifer and Cindy were the girls that, they, that the family suspects. Um, you know, and, and I guess I ask myself, you know, what's the motive if there was, if they were at a party and there was a fight at the party, then it's a no-brainer. 
you know. Um, so then we then we would then we have a direct line leading to who these the suspects in this case should be. The way things were left in that place with the kind of ghetto, not real cleanup, um, it, it makes brings me back to somebody went there looking for a fight, not necessarily to kill anyone because they didn't bring right. a knife or a gun, right? Or we don't know for sure, but right. Well, she died. Like she died from blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. That, exactly. According to the medical examiner. Okay, so. If, in fact, they did it with something that was in there, happened to be in there, you know, then that even more points to... A crime of passion. Crime of passion. I mean, it really could have been a fight that went too far. Yeah. She might have been murdered for the simple fact that they knew she'd be alone at that time there. So they knew she'd be there. Um, But how they would know... Even if you knew Casey and you knew he was going to leave his house, there's no way you would know that she was there unless you just... And I hate to use this term, you just lucked out by her being there. George has a point. If this was a crime of passion, a fight that got out of hand, it would have to be someone who knew where Rebecca was. And if there was a fight, there has to be some evidence that indicates that. Are there clues from the autopsy report that could help us piece together what happened? We'll be right back. Good afternoon. Would you like to try a free sample of our double fudge brownie? Oh, sure. Mmm, that's very good. I'll just take one more, just to be sure. Yep, still, very good. Some things never change, like never being able to take just one free sample. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Mmm, is that macadamia nut I taste? Let me take one more. Sir, mm. yeah, I thought so. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a soap opera star. Gracious me, my car has storm damage and I've had to file a claim. Could it possibly get worse? Will my claims team leave me for someone else? Someone less intense? Um, no. Actually, when you file a claim with GEICO, you get your own dedicated claims team who promises to stay with you throughout the process. Oh, I've never known such loyalty. I can't wait for the second season. Geico. Great service without all the drama. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope. It's Geico. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, giveth thou the berries. For 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. No, it's from Geico because they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. According to the autopsy report, it didn't appear that there were obvious defensive wounds. It got me wondering, if Rebecca got into a fight, she would have had defensive wounds, right? But after a week of her body being out in the elements, would you be able to even tell if she had any defensive wounds? Decomposition relies on elements. Right, so the hotter it is, the faster body decomposes. This is Jane Gorniak, a medical examiner in Atlanta. Some injuries are, they, yeah, they have different colors to them. So an acute or a close to or around the time of death, if someone has an abrasion or laceration, there'll be some body reaction to it. So it might be more red, it might be a little inflamed. But when you have an abrasion or a laceration after death, the tissue, their body doesn't react to it. So there's not that red color. So you'll probably see it as a more of a yellow or drying looking. But once a body starts decomposing, there's a lot of body changes that go along that we couldn't even tell if it's pre or post-mortem. 
So just depending on the tissue that's left also. So the tissue can get dried, um, depending if you're saying someone's out in, you know, in a really hot, so the tissue can dry, or we call it, the other is putrefaction, where it's the bacteria that, for a lack, I say they start having a party, so your body starts really breaking down, and it's, it's more, we call a wet decomp. So that's when people get blistery and bloated, and um, there's fluid under the skin, so that can change the, their appearance. So the body gets a, a green, black discoloration to it, so that can mask any color of a of new abrasion or an old abrasion. So even though there were no apparent defensive wounds indicated on the autopsy report, it's possible that the decomposition of Rebecca's body could have masked those wounds. But normally, a trained medical examiner would catch that. And then there's the fact that we know Rebecca was a fighter. We've heard it time and time again. So I don't think we can rule out that she would have fought with her killer that day. In fact, it's highly possible. The question is, was this a fight that escalated into murder? Or was Rebecca surprised by her killer, having to fight back in the heat of the moment as her killer swung at her? Some of the people involved in this case may have been doing drugs. But despite what the police may think, it's looking more and more unlikely that drugs were the motive for this murder. Several times during this investigation, we've heard that Rebecca's murder involved more than one person and that those people were at a party over the weekend. But as far as we can tell, there was no party. In fact, Rebecca kind of kept her two groups of friends separate. Chris had never met Casey. We have heard that Jennifer and Rebecca got into it at a party, but it was a while back. To me, all the stories are matching up. Um, JB's story, Chris's story. I mean, the timelines are a little uncertain because they were partying a lot at the time. But yeah, I mean, all of their stories match up. Rebecca was the girl that men wanted and women wanted to be. Whether they loved her or hated her, the person who killed Rebecca was obsessed with her. And now we can add a new element to our murder board, a love triangle. Jennifer is the only person so far that we know knew where Casey's house was and potentially knew Casey's work schedule and that Rebecca would be alone. And if Justin was still involved with Rebecca a week before she was killed and when Jennifer was hormonal and pregnant with Justin's baby, jealousy starts to look like a real potential motive. But we know she had an alibi with shopping receipts as proof. And the lack of defensive wounds still gives me pause. This just doesn't seem like a girl fight that got out of hand. We still haven't found Jennifer to talk to her directly. But with what we know right now, I don't think she's the one we're ultimately looking for. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. is a joint production between How Stuff Works and School of Humans. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church is our producer and story editor. Audio editing and design by Jonathan Sleep. Mix engineer, Glenn Matulo. Audio mixing and love by Tune Welders. Executive producers, Brandon Barr and Elsie Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for How Stuff Works. Our field producer is James Morrison. Our researcher is Sandy Klosterman. Theme and original score by Ben Soli. Available wherever you get your music. To dig into the investigation, please visit helengonepodcast.com 
or follow us on social media. Support for this podcast is from Williams. We make clean energy happen. Williams is the first North American midstream company to establish a climate commitment and an immediate approach to a sustainable future. We've released our 2020 sustainability report to track progress on our ESG goals, which includes a near-term emissions reduction target of 56% by 2030. We're leveraging our natural gas-focused strategy to fight climate change today and build a clean energy economy tomorrow. Our infrastructure and commitment are transforming the future of energy. Learn more at williams.com. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at adoptuskids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.